Hello everybody, welcome and thank you again for tuning in on another episode of Africa Careful. In today's episode, we are going to talk about, uh, we'll continue our conversation on African identity. Um, but this time around, we are going to talk about our identity in the diaspora and apparent conflict that exists between the Africans and the African-Americans in America. For this uh, episode, we are very grateful to have um, a philosopher, a very well-landed man, to be able to help us understand some of these and also give us some solutions and ideas on how we can be able to bridge this divide that uh, we have between, uh, within, amongst ourselves. Welcome to the careful Dr. Rue. Hey, man, I appreciate you having me on here again, man. Um, again, it's always a pleasure and treat every time we have a chance to catch up and convene and discuss different forms of ideas. Thank you for, for uh Especially taking your time to educate us. So, um, in our last uh, discussion, we talked about a few things, and I know it's hard to be able to really do an in-depth focus on all these ideas. Uh, but the whole concept of the podcast is that um, maybe we can start or spark the conversation in people's minds, and hopefully, they are going to continue to have those in little groups or in uh, wherever they're. Uh, in their work of life or, or around their sphere of influence. This whole aspect of uh, African identity, um, the fact that as Africans, uh, part of our identity rooted in our culture, rooted in our tribes. Mm. But then when the colonial powers came, um, part of, I guess, the genius of colonialism was to separate us, was to mm -hmm. really come and, and separate us, create division amongst us. So in my... Uh, when we look at, for example, Zimbabwe and Zambia, it's mm -hmm. that one country is across the Victoria Falls and the other one is on the other side. Um, right. we look, same thing, we look even at the Congo, it's the River Congo, we put one on this side, we put the other one on that side. They come from, they say, oh, there's this big forest. Let's just put that as a demarcation line. And as a result of that, that has really stayed with us. We see that a lot of us Africans who come to America to, for pursuit of higher education, Coming here at, at tender ages as teenagers, we struggle to um, accept that identity because we've left this cultural heritage of ours and we're being brought into a system that groups us as one, as blacks or as African-American. That becomes uh, a struggle for us. But a big part of this, um, some of us really did not even have that opportunity. Some of us don't have that cultural heritage to look back at except for the fact that they're blacks. So these are our ancestors, a lot of our great-grandparents and uncles that were taken, put on a boat, shipped, and they were brought to America. So for a little bit, uh, you study philosophy and you, have, you read a lot about how did, what were some of the effects of this, I guess, unlawful or unwillful migration? Yeah, no, brother. I mean, that's a heavy and tough subject. Um, so we're going to try our best to be able to talk about this in succinct manners. But yeah, you know, I mean, so so there are a couple of things that are interesting, right? Like, so in terms of the American context, the way Black identity has been studied, both so 1940s down to the 1980s kind of set the parameters in which we can even talk about the legacy of slavery, which is to say that like Southern uh, historians were really aggrieved with the Civil War, right? The ways in which Black people participated in the Civil War 
and gain their liberation ensured that white people started writing histories that ensured that uh, they talked about questions that asked about Africans retaining their identity into the new world, or did they morph into being American? How much division has emerged from that? So if you go back to even the 1940s, like the American sociologist, the School of Sociology of Chicago was really concerned about the ways in which um, Black people were developing affinities to Africa as they were trying to understand Black nationalism. And they thought that because Africans were no longer on the plantation, they were becoming too militant. And that has its historical precedent. So part of that was thinking about the World War Ones and Twos as they happened in terms of different ethnic groups within, like the Russians were going through their own experience. Marxism was popping up. People like Lenin and all them people were coming up with their own understanding about revolution. And within the American context, you saw that sociologists were worried about the affinity of post-Reconstruction and the ways in which Black people seem to gravitate to Africa. So this is why Marcus Garvey becomes important in that lineage, even Black nationalism that emerges from that time period, um, even communism as Black people are thinking about the ways to salvage Africa. So what we have seen throughout the ages, again, like we spoke about in that first conversation we were having, was that there are ways in which Black people have always been linked back to Africa that has been suppressed in different discourse, in the different academic disciplines, political systems, and economy, because white people have always seen themselves as creating forms of civilizations that they can impose on Africa. So if you go back to the ages in which Egypt was a big metropole, Timbuktu, but even the Southern African regions, right? Like we don't talk about, for example, iron being melted in, in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe was big on that. Zambia, for example, was one of the biggest copper producing countries before Brazil took over. The ways in which African government systems became germane to the continent and the ways colonialism splintered that, they created divisions in which then they thought about the people who they brought to the new world. The claims that the Western systems wanted to create was that Africans in the New World no longer have a lineage back to Africa, all right? And that, again, is a falsity. One way to do this is to look at the petitions that happened in Massachusetts in the 18th century. When you look at the petitions, all those petitions that were sent within the Massachusetts Congress, you had all those Africans saying that we need to be sent back to Africa. We know that our understanding of who we are is that we're Africans. We're not slaves. We're not meant to be people who labor under for you, right? So part of this long debate that's happened because of slavery has been this question about how much do Africans brought into the new world retain a memory and sense of who they are? And how much does that then create an imposition with new Africans who are brought into that sphere to be able to engage with them? Uh, let's just follow up a little bit. How much do Africans who are brought into this new world? What, what did they bring? Let's just fast forward a little Um did the election of, say, Barack Obama, you know, have any change on this? On this? Did it have any? Did he move the needle a little bit? Sure, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, so Obama is a complicated figure, right? Like Obama is highly educated, went to Columbia, uh, did some time at Harvard, um, studied under Derek Bell, and so political scientists have this concept called deracialization, in which. The basic claim is that for any black political figure to be elected in this country, they have to show that they're not uh, black enough, right? So they have to show that white people can vote for them in ways in which their policies that they're about to institute will not be black. And again, that is the difference, right, with 
say, 19th century Black philosophy in which Black thinkers were migrating and arguing for migration. People like Martin Delaney, Martin Delaney actually traveled back to Nigeria, right? He went to Egypt, he went to Nigeria and was asking for ways in which Africans can be taken into the modern sort of conception of what was going on. Haiti itself had a lot of Congolese people. So the Haitian Revolution happens because a lot of the people who came into Haiti were actually from Congo and they had their own government systems and what they brought to them within the ways in which the soldiers, political figures were doing things that pushed up against the French. When you look at some of the biggest slave revolts that happened within that Western Hemisphere, it happened in Brazil. And all those people were politically astute people who developed African principles that they brought to the modern world. So when we talk about Barack Obama, that's the missing link, right? Like most African revolutions were based on revolutions because they were based on African principles, right? Like we don't always talk about in the historical context because of the ways in which we think colonialism eroded the ability for Africans to retain their identity in the new world. Obama is complicated in the ways in which he understood for him to be elected as a black man in this country. He had to distance himself from blackness, right? So things like distance himself from Jeremiah Wright, right? His, his pastor that he's gone to and seen for a long time, he does things that he makes sure he's distant from that. Um, the biggest summit that he has with Henry Louis Gates, right? He tries to show that, you know, racial misunderstanding happens. And the one way you can quell this is through a beer summit. The things that he does when, you know, the black woman who goes on advocates and says, you know, Black farmers are not getting the same compensation from the government and white farmers who does that. But even his rhetoric with Africa, right? He's killing all Gaddafi. It's a statement about the ways in which he has to show the white people that black thing black black lives matter is only to the extent to which for him they can get elected, right? So Obama becomes a complicated figure in that respect. Um, but if we're talking about the historical antecedents, Part of the mythos that has been propagated is that Africans in the New World didn't retain their identity. And that's a falsity, right? Like, we can even think about, you know, Zora Neale Hurston has a book where she interviewed the last quote-unquote enslaved person who clearly shows that he retained African identities in the New World. Okay, um, so you, you mentioned that Africans did retain their identity. At the same time, you also mentioned that, I guess, part of the consequence or the side effect of this colonial powers um, on us was the fact that or we were to not have this affinity for our own identity for our own identity but to embrace upon us the concept um, so this is actually I mean it looks like it's still working today because you mentioned Barack Obama being elected as president had to accept this norm that he you know right. he was not black enough you know so distance himself a little bit from that so that means is it still working or did that take the form with all the other people who are talking that we still have this ability to retain identity or not? No, I mean, that's a great question, bro. I mean, you know, I get, I, but, and, and here's something that I think you do best in your own life, right? Like, I think you've resisted the imposition of Western powers in your own ways in which you wanted to stick to who you are and your identity. And I think for most of us, the question is, what is it going to cost for us to be able to do that? Right? And I think for Obama, in terms of his own ambitions, he wanted to be the first black president. He had to do that in those capacities. And we see that in ways in which, like, you know, people, even if we talk about you know, in the context of American context, some people are ambivalent about their own black identities, right? Like, there's this sort of, like, people call it awkward blackness from now, right? Like, there are ways in which it's ambivalent because it has to comport in ways in which 
white people can accept you and even black people can accept you. And I think we see that too. And then within ways in which people want to then extrapolate with the African identity, right? To be African and most of the nomenclature of who the African is, is either the African singer, the entertainer, or the soccer player, right? Like we've lost the ability to think of like African intellectuals unless we're talking about people like Chimamanda and different other African writers who are emerging. But even with that, it's, it's still a sense in which we're not talking about the African intellectual gifts, right? We think about Africans in a more provincial senses. They're safe because they entertain us. Afrobeats is a new musical form or they're good athletes in soccer. And so even those things are divorced the of sense of politics, right? I think Brenner Boy's like last album, African Giant, was really pushing some sense of political astuteness. But, you know, the question is to think about, like, Trevor Noah, for example, pandas to a white audience, right? Like, you know, given the experience of apartheid in South Africa and his own upbringing, you can see him on The Daily Show, he has very mischievous things that he says about Africans that's just like, why are you doing that, right? So, so to your point, you know what I mean? That, that becomes the challenge for us is, like, for most of us who come up in these settings, we want to pander to white people to be accepted in these settings. We don't want to refute those arguments, even if it costs us a presidency or even the Daily Show like Trayvon Noah. So does that mean that when we are acting as entertainers, as good sportsmen, we are, in a sense, leaning away from that identity or at that moment in time we are telling ourselves that we are not African but we are an entertainer or a sportsman yeah that's a great question man. I mean yeah I mean think about what's happening in soccer right like we haven't seen FIFA come down when there's countries in which like African soccer stars are called apes and people throw bananas on the field right where to- African players are told to just suck it up and deal with it and that that is the agreements of western nations like the ways in which racism is always imposed on us, and we are told to deal with it in ways where we have to be upstanding people. So, for example, when Michelle Obama can say, like, when people go low, we go higher, because they don't want to deal with the veracity of Michelle or Obama being called apes, it creates a schism in the ways of, like, no, we should be able to say that's not the right way we deal with this. And we saw this even that happened with the thing with, like, H&M, with the woman who had her son, you know, leveled as a monkey because of an imposition. So so I think for us in this modern contextualization, we have to get back to understand what is what does it mean to be African outside of the Western eyes? And what does that mean when those Western eyes can be challenged, but even the accoutrements that can give us to be able to make us be silent about challenging those assumptions. Do you have any ideas or suggestions for what it means to be African outside of this question? I Yeah, I, I think, you know, he, here's where we go back to my favorite African writer, Ngugi, right? Like, Ngugi was like, we need to be speaking our languages, right? Like, you know, I mean, it's a different, think about it this way, right? Like, the continent of Africa has different, quote-unquote, tribes who speak different languages. In any yeah. other context, you would call those people geniuses, right? Like, for you to be able to navigate different languages is a, is a form of like intelligence, right? Like, and I think Ngugi was on this for so long. And this is why Ngugi would never be given the Nobel Peace Prize because Ngugi was advocating for African languages as the centrality in which literature should be written. People don't want to contend with that. We can write literature in Russia and French and all these Western nations, but the moment you write literature in African language, the Western world can never acknowledge that because why? You think that's inferiority. And I think Google has been pushing us to say we need to adopt the ways in which we understand that the linguistic ability of Africans has always changed the world. 
It's very interesting. That means that you are advocating that language is the big part of identity. The fact that we're having a conversation in English and not in some local African language, the fact that we are, in a sense, have been brainwashed. No, I agree with you, right? Like, I should be speaking Timbuka to you, right? Like, that's my tribal identity, and that's what I was born into. Much the same way, you should be able to talk to me in your tribal identity, and let's figure out the mediums in which we and I can have this conversation. But the fact that both you and I are PhDs, educated in Western educational systems, we're having to be critical of that language and discourse to be able to talk about this identity. And this is what the negative movement was trying to get to, right? They were advocating for ways in which we retain back to the African ways. Said differently, when white people came to Egypt, that's what they did with hellographs, right? Like they took those things and said, let's translate into English. So when Gugi was saying, let's go back to the African languages, he understood that like all the Western civilizations were initiated in the mysteries of the African languages. Why did we assume literature is on a literature when it has Western idioms and customs? Language is a big part, and I know that um, in a lot of our African schools, I, I can remember this, growing up mm-hmm. in, in Cameroon, going to school, if we didn't speak English or French, yeah. formal languages in school, we got punished. So that means that we really have to go back at the base and really start to adopt a, a, a one language that we all can speak. But isn't that going to be hard? I mean, how do you go to a continent of 54 countries? and islands and you go there and tell them that we need to pick one language how do we even get to to start doing that i mean who is going to give up their language uh, i mean you're right i mean and this, i'm not saying we should model ourselves against the europeans but i mean look at what europe did they colonized the rest of the world and then the king james bible was the you know the one language everybody had to speak when you talk about christianity right like Think about, like, why isn't there a Christian Bible in German that's used universally, right? Like, those are the impositions is to be able to say, like, and, and, and it's even the case, even if you go to German, people can speak in German and still be speaking in English. So even with the context when Gugi was arguing for, it wasn't necessarily saying, like, dethrow all the languages that you're able to speak. Gugi was saying we need an operational language that enables us to understand the African identity. And then if that means you're still able to retain your African identities, that's fine. And that's what we're trying to articulate is to say, like, when it comes to variety, any person who grows up in Africa, you realize that that different tribal identity, bro, think about it. You've had to navigate a different tribal identities and have to quote unquote code switch. Right? Like you have to understand, like you're talking to somebody from a different tribe. How do you engage with them? What is the language that is apropos? That's interesting, right? I mean, this whole concept of language, I, I think, but I'm still struggling to think how do we make it work? In this 21st century, how do we make it work? Yes, we've figured out a way to be able to, you know, maybe a medium to, to understand each other. I mean, back in the day, we had these big markets. I'm sure everyone didn't speak the same language, but somehow we're able to still do trade. Um, but now we have come so far away. Like, uh, how do you go back? I mean, what as a, as a diaspora, how do I living in the West, I have to be able to, again, I don't know, maybe for lack of a better explanation, somewhat conform to the new environment, right? Be able to either succeed or be able to push through. And I agree with you. And all I'm saying is, how did our ancestors do this before English was the language that was thrust down our throats, right? Like, how were people able to understand each other before English was a medium so when people were traveling from the northern part to the southern part of Africa, 
what ways would they use to understand each other, right? Like, and they did that be, before English was the modern idioms and language that people spoke, and that's what we have to get back to. Like, we we have to stop to think of ways in which African languages are so poor or are so obtuse because it doesn't happen. Like, think about like people go to French schools, right? Like, hook on phonics, and if you're educated in the American system, you take Spanish, German, or French. You don't take a class in Swahili. Ask yourself that. Like, why is it not that language? Right? Like, why is French, Spanish, German, or any of these European languages the model of which you have to be educated in language? And we have to say to ourselves, what did our ancestors understand when which English was never the language in which they had to say, oh, because I'm meeting somebody from Cameroon, I'm from Zambia. If I don't have the phonetics to be able to speak in that language, I'll be able to understand each other, right? And that's what we are talking about, the ways to retain what our ancestors knew about the continent and different people within these continents, and they were able to have dialogues and discourse with each other. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I hear you. I, I agree with you. Uh, we can look at the example of Rwanda, right? When Rwanda was going to genocide, one of the genius of Kagame was that we need to change our language. We need to stop speaking French. And French was taken out of Rwanda, its educational system and all of that. They started there in Rwanda and, and all of that. It became their national language. And we saw that just that language change has now propelled Rwanda into a country that has become an icon in Africa where everyone wants to be like. So maybe yeah. we can start local or start small. No, absolutely. And I think Google was just ahead of his time, right? Because there were... The, the colonial positions were still in Kenya and um, no, no, where's Ngugi from? He's from Namibia, sorry. Um, so yeah, I mean, he was ahead of his time in that re- respect, but even like Botswana retained the same ways. I mean, Botswana was very clear about the ways in which those languages were germane to the African experience, and, but even Botswana. So I, I, I think that's a reality, right? Like, you can say the same thing about European nations. Like, they never gave up European nations, as much as they colonize other nations, they imposed their language on different people because it was the ways in which you understood the laws, the custom, philosophy, the culture, and even things that govern like that. The same thing with American experience, right? And what's so funny about America, the American language only developed because of black people in this continent who challenged the idioms of the English, right? Like, so, so that's what we're talking about here. Like, part of the challenge is we have to be able to move beyond how we think about African languages being so obtuse, but that these languages themselves have been germane to creating conditions in which Black survival has been pertinent. And what was so funny, and this is so funny, when you actually read some of the French writing that the Haitians were doing, they challenge a lot of that language by using broken, broken French, right? Like, and it's the same thing yeah. even in the American continents. You know, language is one of that, I that is deeply rooted in identity. But, uh, you know, we've talked about maybe changing in politics and all of that stuff. But mm-hmm. let's now maybe come a little bit lower to a level that a lot of us can relate and identify with this whole concept, this conflict that we have mm-hmm. um, as Africans uh, or as African-Americans. We seem to have this apparent um, uh, divide or this apparent uh, uh, fight Maybe not, maybe not fight. Maybe some kind of uh, a tug of war going between us, where uh, a lot of the Africans who show up in America are not accepted by the African Americans that are here, that were brought here out of you know, they're brought here not by their free will, or their ancestors were brought here not by their free will. Is it because 
it, you know, why is why is this conflict? You know, this apparent conflict. Why do we have that? And can part of this be traced down to maybe language, the fact that they've lost that identity, or uh, in a sense, but then they see these other people coming uh, from the continent who have some of that cultural heritage with them. Yeah, no, that's a good question, bro. I mean, so right, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, so one of the challenges about immigration is like the big myth about immigration is that people migrate for economic reasons for a better life, right? And so that puts the position that people um, are coming here because they're particular skill sets that matter to Western nations. And when you understand that, you have to interrogate what that means, right? Like immigration law is a function in which they only pick people with high skill sets, right? So say like the Silicon Valley will only pick people who can either be uh, PhDs in the STEM world or you will get a P- you'll get a visa if you're an entertainer or somebody coming in for education. So in other words, immigration law is predicated on metocracy. The assumption was that people who migrate to this country are coming here to be part of the middle class system in which they're accepting that part of this mobility means that I have a high education, I have money, I don't need the government to be able to sustain particular needs and function. That is the mythos of the immigration system. What we don't always talk about is that immigration became a consequence of the World War Ones and Twos, in which, again, like we talked about, because the Germans colonized Africa, Western nations were trying to figure out what is owed to these African nations. What are the ways in which we have to deal with these African nations and the people who are in these African nations? What the U.S. did was to say, look, lynchings are happening in the South, right? And so, I mean, well, some of, let me put scholars out there so people can actually read this. Derek Bell talks about this in the Brown versus Board case. Mary Duzak has talked about this in terms of the Cold War and the position in which the Cold War was really a front to be able to say, because Black people in America are treated differently than any other nation in the world. Black people can come to this country. So part of the Cold War and the World War One and Two was a fight about how to treat Africans both in the diaspora and in Africa. So when the U.S. government passes the Civil Rights Amendments, it's doing that to be able to show that Africans and Black people and across the world can be treated fairly here, right? So what then happens is that we don't talk about the fact that Germans, the British, America, and everybody else colonized Africa and they owe them reparations, what they passed was civil rights and immigration. So immigration law was what was given to Africans, while civil rights is what is given to Black Americans, right? So even as we're pointing to, when the conversation dovetails to economics, Black people are taking our jobs. That is a function in which Western systems are seeing you as a person who can be able to have particular skill sets. So do Black Americans have skill sets that comport with diversity, all right, or skill sets that allow you to go to Harvard? Much the same way for an African, if you're going to be recruited to an American university, what skill sets do you have? And oh, by the way, do you have money? So the ways in which people, in which the Western nation has conflicted colonialism and what is owed to colonial countries, much the same way what is owed to Africans in the modern world in terms of being colonized and enslavement has created a division in which white people stay back and say, the only way we understand your need in these economic systems is based on your skill system, which you can offer us. So again, immigration law is solely a question of metocracy. When you see how people apply for visas, you're either applying here because you're coming for education 
or you're a PhD and you can work in the Silicon Valley, or you're an entertainer, or you have a family member here who's been here long. That is the same way for a black person. When you're applying for schools, you have to show you have a high GPA, you overcome these obstacles, you're somebody who's rising. So, so part of this division, again, and this is some of the conversation we had in the earlier conversation we're having, Black people have not been able to dictate across the diaspora and even the modern world our own worth and needs in which we challenge Western impositions and how these spaces need us to be able to function. If I hear you correctly, is that um, these immigration systems build on meritocracy and I guess only the best, best are coming over in mm-hmm. a sense if and feels like those who were brought here so, I mean, the ancestors that were brought here, not by their own free will, they feel that they are not being given their shot. All they got was civil rights, and now they are, in a way, they are compensating their, their progeny is coming out of the continent with this middle-class life, but yet they are still stuck in this system of maybe modern slavery or in this system of poor neighborhoods, no mm-hmm. access to hospitalization, no access to education, nothing to be able to move them up the economic uh, ladder, but yet these guys coming from out have that opportunity that they don't have. Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, so think about this. We're like, what, why aren't you and I in Africa staying in Africa, right? So, like, if post-colonialism had worked the way it had, black Africans should not have migrated from African countries. It's the same thing with the black American experience. Like, most black Americans who make it out quote unquote are celebrated for making out their hood or the environments in which they're from. It's no different from an African who's leaving the African continent and their country to be able to come to the Western hemisphere in which you have to come and conjoin into middle class reality. So what you start to see is a fight about the middle class metocracy in which both either from the black American experience or even the African experience, you have to be able to show that part of your entry into America or even the Western world, is that you're coming in as a person who adheres to middle-class values, right? And that becomes the challenge that we all have to say, like, no, there are reparations that are owed to people who are enslaved and even African countries in which colonialism depleted our natural resources and infrastructure. That is possible why we have this crisis, that yeah. uh, there's unequal opportunity then, both for the ones that were taken out and the ones that are now coming in at, you know, by their own free will. So they have, you know, in a way you're saying it's succeeding because of the, the division that has been created amongst us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about it this way. You and I are both getting PhDs, right? Like, you know, in most metrics and forms, white people would be like, y'all smart Africans, you're, you're different from, and if, if we just even stay in the African continent, right? Like that's something to say, like, you want to be educated, you want to do for yourself. It's no different from saying the same thing when you talk about African-Americans when they say they're bootstrapping. And those opportunities may look different because let's say there's spot op- sports opportunities or you get education. But it's still the same underlying thesis is that you have social mobility in which you're not depending on social structures. Right. So part of the argument there is like if black people, irrespective of where they come from, work hard enough, they can be the best who they are, which is why that earlier conversation we're having with Obama right, creates this mythos. Obama is this biracial child who has a father from Kenya who goes to Harvard, a mother who's from Kansas, meets him, and she's more of a world. 
Obama is a child of that union, both of the African diaspora in which an African student comes to Harvard, sighs a child and leaves and goes back, and a white mother who's not entirely middle class, but she produces this child who's traveled across the globe and it can manage as the president of the world. So the mythos there is to say, irrespective of where you come from, hard work can get you into where you need to be. And we know that that's not the case, right? But it's the assumption that we're always trying to make either Africans in the diaspora or Africans on the continent adhere to this understanding that you just have to work hard and you will get to where you need to be. Okay. I mean, this in a sense is counterintuitive then because if we don't, if we don't work hard, we don't, we get nothing. But now you're saying that we've been trained to say, if you work hard, you're going to get out of it. But then you, are you saying that there are a lot of people who are working hard but not making it out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the numbers show that. Like, I mean, I mean, think about immigration law. Like, think about like for most Africans, like you may go on for F one visa, right? You have to pay for that. That's money you have to pay. That's meritocracy. The same way you have to be able to improve, prove to an employer that your skill sets matter to an American, so you can get an H one visa, right? Like there are ways in which you constantly have to work to satisfy the needs of American. Uh, employees for you to be a citizen or even a resident. It's the same thing as a Black American. You have to be able to show why you matter to a company because and this, this is the concept we're talking about, deracialization. You have to be able to show that at all points, you're not like Black people who may argue that because of my race and my socioeconomic standing, I'm then needing to have support. So across the board, we're brought into the systems in which we the argument is that, look, just work hard enough and you can get where you need to be. That's not the case. We know ICE is on black people, right? We know immigration law is really looking at the ways in which Haitians, Nigerians, Trump just passed an ordinance that made sure that Nigerians are not coming to this country. And by most matrix, however you may want to think about it, Nigerians are some of the most hardworking people given the conditions in which they live in and having to migrate in those spaces. So there's this ellipsis in which black labor is never accorded the same matrix in which white people's labor is, right? And we penalize black people for striving to actually be great. So how can we solve this problem then? How can we, I mean, a lot of us are not in politics or in public policy, so to speak. Um, now, how can we, on a one-on-one level, how can I, as an African immigrant and a brother who is you know, an African-American here, yeah, how can I, you know, what can I do to bridge this fight or this crisis that exists among us? I, I think it's it's conversations, it's living with people, understanding the histories that we're each immersed in, and then most importantly, like understand the ways in which Western powers are invested in our division, right? Like, I I hate to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but if you study history, that's always the truth about the way. I mean, so said different, like I was talking about, like think about the scramble of Africa. Western nations had to be invested in which they were saying, look, the Germans have taken most of Africa. Western nations had to come together. They literally paused as they were fighting each other in world wars to say, what's going on with Africa? Right. So we have to be able to understand the ways in which these divisions are not a are not an ontological facticity, but the ways these are imposed on us. Like even the Rwanda genocide, right? This was a question about diamonds, right? Like people losing lives because Western nations wanted minerals. Our lives were not sufficient to say, no, these are human beings who matter and irrespective of the environment they're in. Their diamonds matter more than their lives. Uh, and I think for us, that is the reality we have to get back to. And we we're talking about an earlier podcast. Politics has to matter in the modern age. Okay. So we all should get involved in politics then. 
all. We should. That is my basic argument. I love Afrobeats. <laughs> I loved everything else, but politics matters. The modern world is based on politics. Okay, so I mean, this is interesting because then we can segue into um, let's look at uh, South Africa. Julius Malema, yes. right? Politics matters. Yeah. You have this brother Malema comes up, and you know now he has his what he calls his Red Army, the EFF, and yeah. you know they're talking about all this stuff where they don't want. You know, they want their land back. They want, you know, their resource back. They want to be able to control. I mean, you know, now we see this guy is, is gotten into politics. I mean, is that the right approach then? I mean, I mean, we can't, I mean, we can't, maybe in this time that we have, we can't really dissect everything, but is that approach working? I mean, it's great. That's a, oh. You know who I'm more like? I think like Mugabe was right about some of the things, right? Kick all the white people out of life. I know Mugabe is a complex figure, but but I mean that in all seriousness. I mean, think about like, so let me say it this way. Let's use American example, right? Uh, the Americans had to create treaties with indigenous people to be able to steal their land. Yeah. And the indigenous people have not been able to reclaim that. And that mattered, right? Like the ways in which land was mattering because of what they called manifest destiny to be able to expand beyond the 13 colonies to be able to have 52 states. And I think the way Westerners think about their identity in forms of governance, land matters because of the resources that you can governize and then trading with other people, trade and butter matters, right? So I think for us in the modern world, like we've been talking about in an earlier podcast, right? Like one of the things we're not talking about with China is China is causing a lot of deforestation within the Southern Hemisphere of Africa because they're taking so much of the timber and the products from those trees to create tables that they're selling across Chinese um, sort of constituencies and towns. So for us, yeah, like it matters. We have to protect the land. We have to protect the resources that come to the land. Those things have not only ancestral but political lineages because for the Western world, land and the people who own the land matters in terms of your identity. So we can even think about your mortgage, right? Like you owning the land in which you build a house will matter as a citizen. You're respected because you own that land. So I think we have to be serious about the politics in which we allow Westerners and Eastern powers to be able to dictate to us what their land and resources matter as they use them for their benefit. Yeah, so, I mean, to recap here, we've talked about the language, we've talked about this economic mobility, our need to get involved in politics, you know, dialoguing with others, so as to be able to create some of this divide. But I think that um, one thing that I also resonate a lot with is economic stuff because if we go back and look at just Malema stuff, uh, is that it's one thing, right? If you give me the land and I have no resource to be able to develop the land, then we go back, the cycle continues because then you will right. come with your cash, like China is doing right now. It will give me money, take my land back, and I'm still back to where we started. So, yeah. I mean, are, are people, I mean, I don't know. We need to get involved in politics and all of that, but it looks like when we are back into the politics, we like still perpetuate the same cycle over and over again. No, you you didn't, and this is what we're talking about earlier in the earlier podcast, right? Like people like you know Thomas and Kofa, or even like even someone like uh, Gaddafi. These these were the concerns we had because even Amir Cabral, right? Like they were trying to figure out. I mean, how do we get back to what we understood was germane to us as a people? with those lands and, and even terms of crops. And obviously, in a modern world, we can't just go back to tradition. We have to be able to say, what are lessons we learned from people who galvanized these lands before we came to be who we are? But again, 
like we're talking about. Part of this is that we're not educated in the African system, right? Most of us, again, are either educated outside of Africa, the continent, and even our homelands by going to these Western positions. I have a friend who studies philosophy, and when he came here, he was telling me it was the first time he actually was dealing with Black philosophers. And he's this guy, somebody who taught in the Nigerian seminaries and schools, and he was doing African philosophy, but it was the first time when he came here, he started actually dealing with Black thinkers. And we have to ask why. Why aren't most of us taught to be able to extend the economic theories and arguments of our forefathers into the modern world? Because that's what white people do when they talk about the Constitution, for example, in America. They think Thomas Jefferson laid the foundation in which you can argue and debate the merits of his philosophies post his era. Now, let's go back to practical stuff. You, know, you mentioned sure. that one thing we can do is we can you know, engage in these dialogues, right? We can engage in these dialogues with people, get to know them. Um, what else? I mean, what else can we do? Nice dialogue. Yeah, you know, marry some Africans and marry some black people. You know, like let's 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 struggle with each other. I, I mean, I think, and again, that you know, part of the human condition necessitates that there's fallibility, there's error, and then there's also triumph. And I think, as African people, both in the continent and the diaspora, we should be able to have that liberty to do that with each other. We're not saying African people are perfect. You know, and colonialism has created these infallible beings. But how do, like we're talking about earlier in the other podcast, right? What is the African right to be wrong? How do we understand that? How do we appraise that? So that means we can try to have families. We can try to have businesses together. Let us go through all these different ways in which we try to figure out on our own terms the ways in which we can survive as a people without the imposition of other people. Because that's what all Western nations have done. Right, like the monarchies between the French and, and the English would move between each other, negotiating about let's marry your son or your daughter, right? Like and I think as a people we have to be able to allow ourselves, especially in this modern context where so much of globalism brings us together in contact with each other, let's wrestle with each other in terms that do not create like I'm gonna throw Africans because they don't seem to understand me or like Africans Americans saying, I don't understand Africans because they have these positions. But I think part of any human community growing is the struggles in which they come to understand each other on particular values and terms. Uh, okay. So we will uh, not just, you know, discuss, but we'll learn to mingle uh, amongst each other. Uh, I think that actually that's a very important, uh, you know, when you were saying that, it reminded me back of uh, our empires. When we had wars, one of the ways we mm. solved them was just marrying amongst ourselves. Because right. as families, we can't fight it all. <laughs> right. No, I mean, there was something to that. There's, I mean, but that's what we're talking about, because then you, you're forced to really learn the customs, idioms, philosophical, political systems that make people work, right? Like, and I mean, I mean, and if that doesn't have to sound so obtruse, but even in our own lives, when we marry into families with people, people will tell you that you marry the family, right? Like, that's what people yeah. tell you. You're not just marrying the person, you're marrying the family. So you have to understand the politics the health concerns, economic concerns that these families have. And I think as a people, those are similar approaches we should have with each other. Like I should be able to understand the history of, say, if I have a Jamaican girlfriend in my position, for example, I should know what Jamaica is Jamaica and why it makes you who you are. Much the same way I hope you understand why it makes Zambian what it is because of me or Zambia, you know, through my veins. So I think for all of us, right, we have to be able to understand, like, it is okay for us to struggle with each other. I think that is the beauty of the human condition. Other people have done this, and we've done that, but it always seems when Africans do that, they're penalized at the ontological level as though they're inferior beings who can never overcome these sort of like hobbles. 
Yeah, so I mean that's a good place to um, that's a good place for us and you know, okay for us to struggle with each other and well okay for us to fail. So um thank you very much. I hope that uh, as people listen to this they're going to be uh, by it, they're going to ask themselves this question and they'll be able to help figure out their own identity and the fact that we are not in conflict with each other, uh, but that we have to come together as a people. It's only when we get united that we'll be able to succeed together and be able to put up that uh, 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 we're able to put up that unpenetrable front, be able to make it through, be it the economic sense or maybe even in politics. So thank you very much for the time and for educating us on this. No, and again, I should just stress, man. Like, I you know I appreciate you because. You know, in a more practical level, you and I are bridging the gap, right? You're from Cameroon, I'm from Zambia, but we're trying to figure out what makes us African men in this context. So you, again, are modeling for us in different ways to be able to do these things at the practical level. So again, thank you for all that you're doing, bro. All right. Thank you very much for all that you do as well and for educating us and helping us think. Absolutely. Appreciate you, bro. Until next time, thank you for joining us at the Carrefour.